Hello, and welcome to Morella Story Podcast. My name is Caitlin Vagadis, and I will be your host. In the previous episodes, I did forget to mention that I do talk a little bit about underage drinking that's involved. The reason why I decided to leave those in and include them in the story is I feel it wouldn't be the full story if I kind of left those out because they will come into play in later episodes. And I think that if we keep trying to picture people as perfect, like I know they always try to get these role models for kids and stuff, and I don't consider myself a role model at all, but when you kind of leave those things out, when you make mistakes later, it can kind of make you feel like you're the only one. And I don't really like that whole representation of people. So I do talk about underage drinking. It does make anxiety and depression worse through drinking. So that's kind of like mistakes that I kind of got into, uh, started making that made a lot of the situation worse. But I figured it was still important to mention it and tell it in the stories. That's why that's in there. Today's episode, we will be kind of doing an addition to that first episode where I kind of talk about the other symptoms that led up to suicidal thoughts and actions. I do want to remind you that if you are suffering through depression or suicidal thoughts, I recommend that you do not listen to these episodes alone, that you do it in the company of someone that you trust and that you can talk to afterwards and discuss it. This podcast is not an outreach program. I am not a psychologist or a counselor or a professional in that field at all, but I do encourage that you seek help from a professional if you're suffering with uh, suicidal thoughts or thoughts of death. At the end of this episode, I will also be discussing some of the uh, symptoms of anxiety and depression and also some of the signs towards suicidal thoughts as well. With that being said, I think we can begin. I was done with the toxicity, the arguments, the random text telling me how much happier everyone would be if I had just left them alone. I would still receive what felt like out of the blue text after not talking to my friends outside of school for months. I was confused as to how all the hate would still be happening. I had not talked to them. I hadn't talked about them. However, it was at this point that I had realized that my best friend was still closely associated with our friends and was still talking behind everyone's back. They had changed her words around and blindly associated me to her words. I was doing everything I could to push it all away. The moment Nikki would begin complaining, I would shut her out. When someone approached me to get the gossip, I would become agitated, and they took the agitation for hatred and spread rumors about the reasoning behind my impatience, never once thinking of the mental state I was in. So many times we have heard people say to leave behind friends that treat you illy. But what is neglected to mention is that they are all you have, and without them, you are alone. And I was not in any state to be alone. After every move I made to distance myself, would be followed by a night of crying myself to sleep, feeling as if nothing I could do would ever be right or enough to please anyone. I felt expendable. I did not want their approval, but I needed company and support, and was desperately hoping to get it from the once reliable source of friends that suddenly felt so far away. At this time, it was late March, and Crescent Players, the community theater group that I was involved in, was wrapping up with the two weeks of shows. During Tech Week, I began reaching out and making closer friends with the cast, particularly talking to one of the 
sound crew members that I had been friends with since the first performance I was cast in, The Sound of Music in the seventh grade. Between my scenes, I would go up to the sound booth and talk to George, and we just caught up and talked about school and the other people that we used to play cards with backstage all the years before. After practice or during breaks, we'd come down and talk to the rest of the cast and play simple games like Kiss, Mary Kill, or Kemp's. Between the shows, George would text me and we would talk almost all day, and we discussed pole vault in which uh, George was beginning to do really well in, and I was falling behind. And although I did not remember telling him, most practices ended with me in tears and frustrated. I had landed varsity as a freshman and began to realize the likeliness of losing the spot this year was rising with each day. However, George remained encouraging and even offered to have me come along to a camp that he had attended to get at, to get additional practices and outside of the high school practices. As my friends fell farther away from me, I felt increasingly closer to George and relied on him as a source of my optimism and reassurance. He had built up my confidence even after performances ended and refused to allow me to t- put myself down. It was a strange but beautiful thing that one person can believe in you even when you do not believe in yourself. On the day of my last performances, in which I had understudied a small role, I was expecting my friends to arrive. We were not officially done with each other, and they had come to every one of my shows in the years before. And I had held out hope I had held out hope to the last day that they were waiting to see my role, even if it was just a few lines. After all, several had promised to go, but it was a Saturday performance, and they chose to go out drinking instead. At this party, Nikki had made out with one of the guys in our friends group, in which I knew this would only start further drama, and what made me more upset is that she knew this too, so she kept this a secret from me. I found out when everyone began to approach me at school, trying to get the scoop on my opinion of the matter. I was livid because I knew why she was keeping it from me, and she was supposed to be there at my show that night. When I asked her about it, she claimed that she liked Tony and was running from it, and suddenly I was stressed to my limit and overwhelmed. Tony and Nikki broke up a year ago, and he was now dating one of our other friends for six months at the time, and I was tired of balancing the drama. I was still stressed about my grades and pole vault, my officer position in the FFA, and at that moment, although I should have been there to help restore her feelings, I didn't have the mental or emotional capacity to do so. When the first week of April approached, the FFA banquet had commenced, and I oversaw table decoration. I could hear the other officers insult and whispers after I mentioned my idea of rustic ball jars with tea-like candles that sat on top of sliced logs. I knew they truly did not hate the idea, but rather they did not like me and therefore did not like the idea. Furthermore, the, the reporter's book I had created had received a gold rating and was on display that day. I was not even proud of the work because I knew what they had been saying behind my back and I felt like I was incapable. I sat through their rewards and announcements at the banquet at the officer table, and at the end, the part that I had dreaded had come around. They were announcing the officers for the following school year. I had known deep down, although I hoped it was not true, that I did not get voted back on. The team had told everyone that me and my sister could not do anything correctly, that we were awkward and hoped we did not make it on. I had none of their votes. My friends that were supposed to show up to that meeting in which they voted for officers did not show up even though I pleaded for them to come support. Then the announcing of the officers came, and my name was never called. And I sat there on the stage with my sister, who had also not gotten enough votes, 
and handed over our positions to the new officers as a part of the official ceremony. And it was humiliating to be handing over your position, choking down tears in front of nearly 200 people, and watching the crowd put it together that you had failed to get revoted. On the way home, me and my sister had cried. In hindsight, I am a little amazed that she had never gone off the road. Every stop was last minute, and the turns were incredibly sharp, as she barely was holding herself together. And that's when she told me that she thought she was suffering from depression and mental illness. And it was obvious to me that she had. But I was not stable enough to be any help, because neither of us felt we could go to a parent for help. And without any control, I laughed, just a quick, broken laugh. Not because it was funny, but because it was not. I felt so hopeless and helpless. I wanted to comfort her, but I was barely able to keep the suicidal thoughts and the desire for it to all be over at bay. I remember immediately regretting the laugh, because it caught me completely off guard, and I didn't mean to do it, and my sister thought I was mocking her. And she kept insisting that it was true, and I found myself crying then for an entirely different reason. I felt a whole different type of dread. We got home, and all my awards and plaques from the past year of placements in the FFA competitions and participations. I remember seeing the accomplishments and feeling this intense hate. That all that I had done did not amount to anything. And I wanted so badly in that moment to burn every one of those awards. Despite the work, the achievements, and the talent it, that it took to earn every one of those pens and plaques, it did not make a difference in the end. I was not an asset to the team. In fact, just like my standing with my current friends, I felt expendable. The following day, I remember sitting in biology and receiving a notification. I snuck a peek at the message from my grandma that said she was sorry about the officer position and that she wanted to say something after the banquet but me and Lily had already left. She said that she was praying for us and that she loved us, and I wish that her kindness brought me comfort, but I was so far gone. I just felt that I was a burden and a disappointment to my grandma, and upon reading the text, I went numb. However, I would be lying if I said everything had gone entirely wrong. Even as I faced disappointment after disappointment, I still had one person with whom I could confide. Not long after the FFA banquet, on a weekend that I had chosen to stay home because my friends were smoking that day, George had come over to our basement. He was the one that introduced me to the office. He skipped around to the series to show me all of his favorite episodes. His top pick at the time was the Lice episode with Dwight's hazmat suit. We skipped around to just the introductions of a few episodes or the best scenes. Then we began to watch the first half of The Heathers before getting confused and just turning it off and watching The Blair Witch. However, keeping in theme with the rest of the night, we just skipped through the scenes because George hated scary movies. Because George hated scary movies, but just wanted to get an idea of what it was about. We never even got to any of the scary parts because if anything seemed to allude to a jump scare, he would fast forward. I got most of my entertainment just from watching him lose it over the parts we did watch. At one point, he showed me his arm and he had goosebumps all the way down. I believe at this point, we just went back to watching the clips of The Office. At that point, he brought his arm up around the top of the couch and put his arm around me when he stopped. And not long afterwards, we called it a night. And I believe I drove him home that day. Nearly two weeks later, St. Henry had their promenade on a Friday night. I took off work to go see a few of the people I met in Crescent Players. I had talked to George after it finished, and he told me that his plan to drive his sister for the after-after prom had fallen through and asked if I would like to do something with him instead that night. I warned him that I was tired and might fall asleep, but agreed. Overall, my other options were to hang out with my friends that day, 
who at this point had begun to ignore me even when I did go out, and I would spend most of the time talking to the parents at the house, or my other option was to stay home by myself. Besides, I was excited to be with George because of all the confidence that he showed in me. I had begun to feel appreciated for the first time in roughly a year, and I started to really like him. I thought about the mistreatment I received from the friends and colleagues, and when I thought about the way that I felt when I was with George, for those few moments, all the other stuff felt so small and far away. He brought the movie Fury over to my house, and we played it on the projector in the basement. It wasn't far into the movie when I laid my head into his sh- on his shoulder and began to nod off. At some point, I readjusted and laid my head on his lap, and he wrapped his arm around me and laid his arm on my stomach and laid his hand on mine. Every two minutes, he would look over, and when I would ask him what he was doing, he said he was checking to see if I was asleep. I told him I wasn't that tired, and within 15 seconds later, I closed my eyes and slept through the last hour of the movie. For the rest of April, track was, was moving forward, and I could see and I would see George every now and then at the meet and I would talk to him and a few other people who were in Crescent players. He would give me pointers for pole vault if he was watching, which he would every now and then because his sister would be competing at the same time as me. However, pole vault was becoming discouraging, and I was putting so much pressure on myself to do well that I was overthinking it and doing worse. Furthermore, I was becoming increasingly frustrated. I would come home crying after practices as my heights felt shorter and shorter, and my sister, who was competing for the spot, was becoming better with every meet. My mom was getting impatient too, because she had felt that my sister deserved a win. She would chew me out in front of the family at supper saying that she worked, that Lily worked for the spot and deserved it, which only made me feel as if I was not working hard enough or deserved it less. One day, I was even sat down in my room as my mom told me that I should just let Lily have the varsity spot because she deserved it. However, I still had a better PR than Lily and she had only beat me once this that year while the rest of the meets I had beat or tied her. We were neck and neck, yet at this moment I was still the better vaulter, and it tore me apart how aggressively my mom insisted Lily deserved it more. I had texted George about it to receive some sort of comfort and figured that he may be able to help. Unfortunately, I had noticed that his texts had become less frequent. I tried not to worry about it, because after all, he initiated the last time we got together. I knew that around this time of year, between track, the pole vault camp, and work, he could be busy. Yet it was just not the frequency of the text that bothered me, but also the tone. He kept his responses brief and did not seem to keep the conversation rolling. Often it felt as if I was talking to myself. I began to rack my brain, wondering if I had said something wrong, and thinking back through the text to see if I said something to upset him. But I was terrified to ask directly. After all, it had only been a week, and I felt that I was overreacting. So I asked him that week weekend if he wanted to do something for a little bit, like watch a movie or go out to eat. But he said that he had a state concert band competition that day and wouldn't be back until really late. However, in the mid-afternoon, I saw the results of the competition from one of my co-workers' Snapchat stories. I congratulated them on the one rating, which is the best you can receive, and asked if they were playing on when they were planning on getting back. They told me that it would be around 7 that evening, and I realized that George was lying but I was making the excuses for him and told me that maybe he got the times wrong. So I texted him and told him congrats, and at that point, someone on the bus ride home, who I was friends with and Crescent players, stole his phone and texted me back and sent, George doesn't like you. I tried to play it off by texting, yeah, I kind of figured. Humiliated that I ever thought differently, 
but further hurt that he was clearly complaining about me to the person who stole his phone. Someone I had often carpooled with for Crescent Players for months in order for her to send that message. When George got his phone back, he asked me what she said, and I told him. Then he simply wrote, yeah, pretty much. And that is all he wrote. Heartbroken and shocked, I text back. Sometimes I seriously don't doubt that. A part of me was hoping to see, see him say that he was joking and that it was not true. But as I said, the last message he wrote was all he wrote. I was not even worth a further explanation to the sudden turnaround. I waited a few days before I asked him to explain what, what changed. To which he responded, I thought I liked you, but I don't. Sorry. On May 6, I started the morning at 5 a.m. and went to work at the bakery. I was driving the morning route, consumed by thoughts of the makeup meet for county that was happening later that day around 11 a.m. It was my very last chance to secure the varsity spot. It was my last chance to prove that any part of me was worth anything. I was driving and I was exhausted, although it was hard to remember now four years later, but I am nearly positive that I had cried the night before and woke up still exhausted and drained. I thought about how this was the same meet that I had secured the varsity spot my freshman year and how I was so proud of beating out my competition and looking back, it felt so conceited and foolish to ever be proud of getting my PR that meet and landing on varsity. I felt it was now only inevitable that it would be stripped away the same way it was stripped from the other girl my freshman year. A few tears fell down my cheek as I drove the morning deliveries. It wasn't long before I nodded off. I woke up when I hit the shoulder of the left side of the road and heading towards the guardrail. Out of instinct, I corrected the wheel, but once I realized what I had done, I was disappointed. I had begun to hope that there would be a next time, and if there was, I would not correct the wheel and just allow it to happen. After all, it would hurt so much less to have my varsity spot taken away from injury than it would to fall short of the bar and failing, and it would be much easier than conscience consciously or intentionally doing it myself. Nevertheless, I felt guilty because I would have wrecked the work vehicle. And at that moment, that beat up old van that barely functioned was worth more than my own life. Yet none of that matters because I did not crash. And the time for the meet was only approaching along with my inevitable downfall that awaited. So I think it would be beneficial to start looking over some of the symptoms of anxiety and depression. Before we do so, I would like to mention my dog's actually listening this time. Usually I keep him upstairs while I'm recording because he whines all the time. But we just got a new cat and so he hates being upstairs. So he's sitting on my couch in the basement with me because he's trying to avoid the cat right now. And so he's just sleeping, which is shocking honestly because I don't think that dog ever sleeps so at least I'm never allowed to sleep next to him because then he just starts whining or he'll bring his little bunny toy over and start squeaking it in my ear but uh to begin <laughs> I think I say to begin like every episode it's only in the second episode but it's fine I'll start with anxiety I mean most of this episode is kind of more depression symptoms but anxiety can still if you have like really high anxiety and it gets really bad, you can start developing really severe depression because it will kind of affect your mood a lot. The causes of anxiety 
can be a combination of several factors. One of them is just genetic predisposition. So like if you have family members that have anxiety or depression, you're likely to develop it and like have it in a hereditary sense. I read somewhere where personality can kind of affect your development of anxiety, but I kind of feel like sometimes it's the other way around where anxiety kind of affects certain traits such as like perfectionism, uh, being easily flustered, being timid, uh, having a lack of self-esteem or being controlling. Some ongoing stressful events can start to provoke anxiety and develop it because of like prolonged stress. This would be just work stress, uh, changing in living arrangements, pregnancy, family slash relationship problems, emotional shock after a stressful or traumatic event, verbal, sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, or death of a loved one. Physical health conditions can also have, they'll cause some anxiety symptoms or can cause anxiety or stress because of the prolonged health conditions. This would include like diabetes, chronic conditions or pains, uh, asthma or heart disease. And some of these physical symptoms can also result from anxiety. I know uh, some heart, like high blood pressure can be a result of anxiety Substance abuse can also trigger a lot of mental illnesses. And some people will use this. Like it'll, it can either trigger some of the symptoms or it can be a result. People will pick up on substance abuse to manage their conditions, but really it's just going to make it a lot worse. And there's several types of anxiety. There's general anxiety disorder, which has to last for over six months and is just general stress and there's like kind of touches base on a lot of different types of anxiety. I know like some people can have traits of like OCD or social anxiety. Like I have general anxiety disorder, but I get a lot of social anxiety too, which is the next one actually. Uh, Social anxiety is the fear, criticism, embarrassment, or humiliation in everyday situations. There's also a lot of things with anxiety, social anxiety, where you just constantly have this paranoia that you don't belong and that you're you kind of get this like uh imposter syndrome i suppose is one way of explaining it the next one would be specific phobias so that's just like fears where you'll have like behavioral conditions where you do avoidance of situations or like you'll have panic attacks which leads into the next one which is panic disorder which has a lot of physical symptoms, including short breaths, chest pains, dizziness, sweating, and it has to last for over a month. Which there is a difference between panic attacks and anxiety attacks, which I believe I'm going to be talking about in another episode. If I don't, someone just needs to like yell at me or something. But the next one uh, type of anxiety is OCD, which is unwanted or intrusive thoughts. And these thoughts, you can recognize them as silly, but it doesn't It doesn't really make a difference if you recognize it as being ridiculous because that fear and that anxiety is still there. And the only way that you can relieve the anxiety is through performing rituals. So people always do this as like a, make jokes about OCD with like being clean. But if things are messy, they feel super cluttered and that can cause a lot of anxiety. And so the way that they would eliminate that is through the ritual of like constantly cleaning things. Uh, OCD can also be like germophobia, but there's also a lot of things where uh, say like you're taking a test and 
if you don't check things over or you don't do like the certain routine, like once you turn it in, you'll just constantly feel like you failed that test. The way that you relieve that stress would be performing the rituals of like checking things over like three times. And so that would be kind of in the ballpark of OCD. Uh, the last one that I have listed is PTSD, which is a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the traumatic events can be war, assault, an accident, or a natural disaster. It can come in the form of upsetting dreams, flashbacks, or avoidance. And it has to be present for over a month. I know, I don't think I necessarily had PTSD necessarily, but I did get in a car accident in over a year ago, but I still to this day, I will not let other people drive if we're going on a uh, car ride that lasts over 30 minutes. So like, that's just like one of my avoidance things that I always do. And I always try to get other people to drive to like get rid of that. And then I just, I don't know. I always like clench my jaw during it and then my teeth freaking kill afterwards. So I just, I just drive myself at this point. I'll just volunteer to drive, which is probably not helping the, the anxiety with that, but it's fine. Oh, well. The way that you can help with anxiety is just talking openly about mental health and encouraging people to tell this, uh, like stories and inspiration. Like this can help other people, not necessarily like yourself, but uh, speaking up about negative stereotypes and just kind of, kind of fighting some of that stigma to allow other people to reach out and get help because anxiety is more than just being stressed. I know when I first started going to counseling and I was talking to some of the people about having anxiety, they're like, well, it's just a stressful time right now. I'm like, no, it's like all the time. It's not just during the stressful times. It's just started going once it was really stressful because at that point it was just really hard to handle a lot of things. And so anxiety isn't just stress. And I think it's really important to make note on that. And so like, if you're trying to help someone who's dealing with anxiety, don't just blow it off as stress. Like sometimes people do these blanket solutions where they're like, it's just stress or just be more positive. And it's not really specific or helpful. If you wanted to help someone with uh, anxiety, it's just like listening without uh, judgment or avoiding fix it language where I was talking about with like that blanket solution. I know when I'm talking about to people about my anxiety, I don't like it when they tell me what to do about it necessarily. Because a lot of times, like, I, I don't mind that other people don't understand what it's like to have anxiety, but I don't like it when they're giving me, like, these solutions or these quick fixes when they don't understand it. Like, when I talk to someone about anxiety, one of the things that I encourage you to, like, I appreciate the most is when people just listen and they'll ask questions. Because when you ask questions, that shows me that you you're caring and you're engaged. And it also like gives me a chance to think through the situation myself. I'm not trying to say like, don't try to help someone, but like just avoid fix it language, which would be like, just calm down or just think more positive. But like one of the things that you can do if we talked about mind traps in the last episode, if they're talking about one thing that kind of looks like it's starting to sound like one of those mind traps, you can kind of point that out where it's, you can be like, well, it sounds like this is the way you're thinking about it. But another way of looking at it could possibly be like such and such way. And I think it's really important to like 
uh, check in on them, even if it's just a few days later, just so that they know that there's still someone at their side. I think that's really helpful for people with anxiety. Along with anxiety, I did mention uh, social anxiety with kind of feeling like you don't belong in situations. This can also be called uh, imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome is just always assuming that you don't deserve like the awards that you have or like the accomplishments you've achieved or that you don't belong in a group. Basing some of these next few things that I'm going to say off of DLC Anxiety, it's an Instagram account that I follow. They did a post about imposter syndrome. This is just kind of a list of some of the thoughts that someone might have if they're kind of going through this imposter syndrome. Uh, One of them would be the praise I get is undeserved or the friends, my friends are only there because they pity me or I don't deserve the things I worked for because I didn't work hard enough. And I kind of feel felt a lot of this with the officer position with the blue and gold award. I felt like I didn't really deserve it just because the way I was treated by the other people, I just felt like I didn't belong. The next one is he only likes me because he hasn't realized I'm bad yet. And I feel like I always have that where if I start talking to someone, I always have like this fear that they only like me because like I I can have like a good first impression or something. But after that, they're going to catch on that I have all these anxiety things and I can get there's like anxiety in relationship can be like really bad. And so I always feel like once they realize this, they're going to leave me and stuff like that. Um, I think that mentality, it actually didn't start with George. It started with someone else that I'll be talking about in, I think, two episodes. The next one would be, I shouldn't celebrate the success because it was just random luck or that you don't deserve it. Along with the previous one, the next thought would be, what if I'm just faking being a good person and everyone is falling for it? Or that I'm not actually good. I just like, I'm a terrible person. I don't belong or don't deserve to have these friends. The next thought that DLC Anxiety listed was, I am not as good as a person. I'm not as good as people tell me I am. They're just being polite. And I always feel that, especially with my uh, architecture classes, when we do a presentation, if I'm not proud of a project, like I don't believe anything that people tell me when they're like, oh, I liked it. It's like, I feel like they're just being nice and not actually meaning it. If they all really knew me, I don't think they would like me very much. That's another thing. Like when I first started going to college and meeting new people, I was making new friends, but it just kind of got really difficult later because I didn't feel like I deserved, not that I that I deserved it. I felt like they didn't really know me. And if once they learned more about me and got to know me more, they're going to leave. And so that was like a constant fear that was in my head when I first started going to college. Uh, Next listed, I have some of the physical symptoms of anxiety, but this also, actually, I think this is the physical symptoms of depression, but it also kind of goes hand in hand with anxiety. They have really similar symptoms. Some of the physical manifestations would be headaches, painful jaw or teeth, which is, I get every single time I get I'm in a car where someone else is driving, Uh, heart palpitations, upset stomach, night or day sweats, fatigue and exhaustion, sensory overload, cramps and bitten and sore fingers and restless legs. And to explain a little more into what sensory overload is, since I know that was something that I didn't fully understand until recently, uh, this one is also from another Instagram post. This one's from The Real Depression Project. 
what they list as what sensory overload looks like is getting overwhelmed by changes in plans, uh, depleting yourself of mental en- energy because of overanalyzing things and considering the infinite what ifs, getting burned out in social settings because you're con- you're on constant high alert for anything that may expose you to judgment, headaches and general pains from mu- muscle tension, uh, feeling exhausted from constant flooding of intrusive thoughts, getting overstimulated by busy environments, getting burned out due to decision fatigue, or you have to fight your mind over even the smallest choices, uh, dizziness because you are so disoriented from intrusive thoughts, getting overwhelmed by nausea or stomach issues that are a result of anxiety. That is just a, like a short list of some of the things that they listed off. Uh, sensory overload is just like your mind so active with some of intrusive thought some of the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety the stress the trying to force down panic that a lot of things around you can become really difficult to deal with like that was some of the causes mostly for sensory overload but sometimes like I know if I'm really stressed out and people talk to me like people's voices will drive me nuts and I'll get really agitated because I'm so overloaded that I can't take, like, the extra senses that are flooding in. I know some people, like, uh, clicking noises, say, like, someone's spoon taps a bowl or something along those lines that will set off the sensory overload where you get, like, ridiculously agitated over small things. Some people can get sensory overload from, like, light. If there's too much light and this, your brain just doesn't want to process any more information than it already is receiving. Other signs of depression can be difficulty concentrating, feeling guilty, restless, agitated or irritable, loss of interest, lack of energy, emptiness, low sex drive, uh, no motivation, despair, difficulty to speak clearly, avoiding social events, changes in appetite or weight, feeling tired, feeling worthless, Uh, low self-esteem, feeling tearful, which that one, I didn't realize necessarily that was a symptom. Like there's times that if my depression's really bad, like I'll just be sitting on the couch. My eyes are just watering all the time. Like I don't want to cry because I don't have a reason, but my eyes are so tearful. I didn't realize that was a symptom of depression. And then indecisiveness, uh, low mood, feeling hopeless, no self-confidence, feeling numb, and insomnia or hypersomnia. So a lot of those symptoms are the same, but often you'll have quite a few of these if you're suffering from a mental illness. And so that's what makes dealing with mental illness so difficult is because so much of your concentration or like the way you view yourself and how you're feeling physically, it's all going on all at once and it can just be overwhelming. And then you'll just get exhausted because you're dealing with all of this so, like, often. You're, like, using up so much, like, mental energy, just trying to, like, keep yourself together. And so when you're just doing that for weeks on end, it becomes too much. And so that can kind of lead into worsening depression, which can, in turn, lead to suicidal thoughts. It doesn't always lead to suicidal thoughts or physical self-harm or anything along those lines. Not, Not every single time, but or for every person, but it's definitely difficult if you're dealing with all of this. Uh, The ways that you can help is 
the, the same way that I was explaining how you could help with someone with anxiety is it's the same for depression where you just listen and try to understand, ask questions, um, extend help. Don't try to do blanket solutions or uh, quick fixes. Uh, you can alternate the perspective. Try to get them to look at something in a different like way. Uh, be present and check in. Uh, encourage self-care or uh, checking in with like uh, professional help because even though like they always say it's all a mentality, it's not all a mentality. I think that's the one of the things that always like frustrates me the most is that people are always trying to explain that, oh, if you just think more positive, like all of this would just go away. And they also think that uh, thinking positive is just something you could turn on. But your mentality is so like ingrained in you that trying to change it is extremely difficult and takes a lot of time. And even after fixing your mentality, you can still suffer from depression and anxiety because like all of those physical and mental conditions and like the hormone imbalances, you're not getting the reward hormones or responses that you need. You kind of can develop a bad mentality because of the physical and mental symptoms. I think people always think depression is a result of a bad mentality, but I think in my personal opinion, I think it can kind of go the other way as well, where you have a bad mentality because of your mental illness. Uh, lastly, to help, don't internalize or personalize things. So if someone's like explaining that, say like when you're trying to help, you did a blanket solution and they're just putting that out they're, and like saying that something that you did might have upset them or for example don't internalize it or get angry about it like they're trying to reach out so that they can improve their mental condition later and they're just giving you a heads up because they care not because and they're like they obviously care about you if they're reaching out to you for help uh lastly i would like to wrap up with some of the warning signs of suicide and in the next episode, we'll, I will be talking a little more about suicide. So I'll give you a little more insight on like how to help someone, how to get help for yourself and what suicide can look like for other people and how it like manifests. The warning signs of suicide includes a history of depression and anxiety or a history of suicidal thoughts or actions. Threats or comments about killing themselves or comments about how they feel hopeless or trapped or want things to be over. Uh, increased use in alcohol and drugs, uh, aggressive behavior or like agitation, mood swings. Impulsive or reckless behavior would be kind of a sign like how I would always fall asleep at the wheel and I didn't really care. In fact, like I would hope that it was gonna be like my downfall that way I wouldn't have to take the actions into my own hands. I was kind of hoping that this reckless behavior would just do it for me. Or like you just get so zoned out that you just stop caring so much. So it's not that you want something bad to happen, but you don't really want to, you don't care to take the measures to prevent it. I already mentioned dramatic mood swings, uh, social withdrawal. I stopped hanging out with my friends uh, months before I thought about like taking my life and so I didn't like and when I did go out I really didn't talk much and I'd always kind of like hang out on the corner not like in the corner by myself but like you know how if there's a huge group of people 
and you're just you're in the group, but you're like kind of out of it and you have to like keep wedging yourself back into the conversation to participate. Like I would never make the effort to continue being a part of that conversation. Talking, writing, or thinking about death, saying goodbye, giving away positions, positions, possessions, or uh, talking about they have no reason to live is another sign of suicide. I didn't give away possessions, but I, uh, in the last episode, I did mention that I was texting the one friend the day that I was talking about I wanted it all to be over on, like, New Year's Eve Eve. And so, like, that whole text would have been a sign that, because I was saying, I wasn't really saying that I wanted to be, I wanted everything to be over right away. I think the initial text was just me, like, saying goodbye and wishing him good luck when he goes to college the following year. And so, like, I was saying, like, my final goodbyes to the people that always stood by my side or that, I didn't want to tell, like, the people I was closest to because I was afraid of what they might think. But then I started talking about uh, death and suicide. And so that was, like, a very clear sign but uh, a lot of people with suicide will talk to at least one person before they would do something. So uh, if you ever hear someone talk about that stuff, do not take it lightly and definitely check in on them. And uh, report if you're like a teenager or anything along those lines, report it to an adult or a counselor. I need to do a little more research as to like what you can do once you're older and you can't just go to an adult. Like if you are the adult, it's kind of like a little more difficult but it's definitely, as I said before, should not be taken lightly. And then fatigue is the last symptom that I have listed that is a warning side of suicide in another, in another person, which this is just identifying it in someone else. We'll get a little bit more into that in the next episode. Until then, if you have any stories of like your own mental health journey or someone else, like how you came into contact with like a story where someone needed help for like mental health and how you helped them and how they got through it, please email it to moralistory.podcast2021 at gmail.com. In these stories, I will be changing around all the names that are submitted. That way no one, it can't come back to anyone. Uh, But if you do want me to give you a shout out for like you were the one that sent it in and you want me to mention your name, just mention that in the email. Otherwise I'll keep it anonymous. The Twitter is Moralist Story Podcast or Moral underscore Pod. And our Patreon is not up quite yet. Uh, check out our Instagram, which is moralistory.podcast. And I'll give you little updates as to when the Patreon will be up. And that's for like donations to help keep this podcast running and allow us to do more things with the podcast and reach out for more like mental health awareness. And our website can be found in the bio of our Instagram. I do not currently have everything set up for it, but I am working on that and I will hopefully get it up by the time the next episode is released. Um, Our Instagram, as I said before, is moralofthestory.podcast. That's my main way of communication. So if you want to like check out the Instagram, I highly encourage that. It's a great place to start. And I will probably be releasing these episodes every Saturday from here on out. I believe that's all I have. And today's quote is from Lisa Olivera. Olivera? It's uh, Oliver and then an A at the end. (laughs) I should probably have looked at that a little bit before. But it is, just because no one else can heal or do the inner work for you 
doesn't mean you can, should, or need to do it alone. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.